uh, verse 18 says, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then it says, verse 20, it says, God's attributes have been clearly perceived so that people, people like it doesn't say like, you know, these past people. It doesn't say like Gentiles. It doesn't say idolaters. It says people kind of like generally are without excuse. So like some people would think that means like literally everyone. That's why they take that view. It's like, what do you think about that? I mean, it's not it's not an imp impossible understanding. I mean, I, I can see the logic of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I would push back just in the sense of. Hello, everybody. This is what your pastor didn't tell you. I have a special guest on this channel today. His name is Nick Quint. He is a PhD candidate in New Testament. We're going to be talking about common verses used in the presuppositional apologetic method. Nick, do you want to say hi and talk about anything about what you're doing, uh, what your background is, all that? I mean, it's pretty pretty boring. Uh, thanks for the introduction. It's, uh, it's Most of it's spent in New Testament kind of theology sort of stuff. Uh, did my uh, master's in New Testament, and I'm a pastor in Southern, Cal or associate pastor, I should say, in Southern California. Uh, yeah, I love Paul, and I love studying Paul, and I think Paul is, as he as he is wont to be, is at the center of most debates in Christian theology, and it doesn't seem like it's any different when it comes to apologetic methodology, so it's kind of cool to be here. Awesome. Right, sweet. Glad to have you on. So what we're going to do today, we're going to talk about verses using the presuppositional approach. We're going to actually read the verses and their context and surrounding verses. And we're also going to talk about, um, Nick's going to go over the text and its context, discussing main points regarding the meaning and how we can apply it when we're witnessing. Now, uh, side note, this is not to promote or bash the presuppositional method. I don't know what Nick's going to say. We are concerned about what the text says. So yeah, let's get into it. All right, so as previously mentioned, uh, I'll just want to go and talk about the presuppositional method. It starts with Romans 1, 18 through 20, which shows that, well, according to the presuppositional method, it shows that all humans know God exists. It is no sense to prove God exists to someone who already knows. The solution, the presuppositional approach, shows that everyone actually needs God by showing that God is the precondition for logic and morality. The non-Christian realizes that they do know God exists because they are using what he has given them and wouldn't, as well as couldn't, use it otherwise. How does that mean Christianity is true? A presuppositionalist would argue from the possibility of the contrary, that other views lead to utter skepticism, and that leaves Christianity as the one possible worldview left. Now, that is a brief overview, and uh, you can check in our press video uh, in the description about other views or a more detailed approach to the presuppositional method that covers it, and uh, we'll talk about that later. Nick, did you want to read the text? Uh, like, I mean, obviously, you know, Greek and all that, so did you want to read it yourself, or did you want to just go to a certain thing and we switch off whatever you want to do no I'll, I'll read from the niv and we can supplement it and play with it uh after that you probably have to start with verse uh romans 1 uh 18 and following uh which speaks of the wrath of god being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of humankind or people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about god is plain to them because god has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And then for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Um, and of course, Paul goes on to talk about. Uh, all these other things about God and glory and stuff. But one of the, the key issues in Romans 1, just in terms of kind of what we might call the, the background text or the background idea is Paul, is Paul speaking of people in the present? You know, and those are kind of questions a lot of people kind of bring up. Is Paul um, talking about people um in the past you know you know so there's all these sorts of questions it's kind of the the who is doing what you know and, and the as it relates to human agency and divine power and stuff like that um god has made it known to them god has made it plain to them god's uh, attributes can be clearly seen or, or visualized and all those sorts of things so the, one of the big questions we need to wrestle with is who is paul speaking of who's the them right and what i'm 
Well, I tend to think, and I mean, it's, 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 you know, hard to come down with a very firm conclusion on this, but my sense is Paul is invoking the, uh, the Genesis narrative. He's probably thinking of Genesis, you might say, um, maybe six through nine, the flood accounts. He, of course, he doesn't mention the flood, but he does mention um, issues of, we might say, the um, decline of civilization or the decline of, of Eden. And so um, most scholars recognize kind of Adamic echoes in Romans 1 and Romans, of course, 5, Adam shows up. And uh, Romans 7, I would argue, probably has Adamic echoes, you know, how Adam functions in Paul's kind of scheme. But what you have in Romans 1 is what I think Paul is kind of recapitulating the Adamic story or the Adamic narrative. That is how Adam acted and what Adam kind of incurred. And so you have this idea of uh, humankind being uh, made in God's image, sharing dominion over the land and all the creatures. But then you have the invasion of sin into the cosmos through you know, deception, you know, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And so what you have, I think, isn't a, a we might say, a philosophical treatise on um, metaphysics and the capacity to know things or incapacity to know things. What you rather have is Paul's kind of summarizing kind of arc of what happens when people um, don't live in communion with God or live in right relationship with God. And so instead of being about kind of these, you know, what we like to talk about, you know, logic, I don't see logic in the text. I see ethics that come up later in the text, but Paul seems more annoyed or rather Paul seems more keen on the idea that God has revealed God's self. And of course, that's in creation through God's handiwork. Um, and people are essentially taking the creation and worshiping creation rather than the creator, you know, and they became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkened and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal, uh, mortal or human beings, basically, and birds and animals and reptiles in verse 24, right? And so you have kind of this idea of what happens when civilizations or peoples or nations go wrong. And so that's why I think you can talk about I mean, you can have the idea also of this is applied now, you know, so Paul can look at the Roman Empire, he can look at the peoples of the nations and pay, you know, what we might call pagans, so to speak, at least in that sense. Um, but what Paul seems to be really invoking is this past kind of narrative and how this past narrative of Adam and sin kind of really um, uh, is speaking to kind of the reality now. And that's, of course, you can, you can go from Adam to Moses to Abraham you know, in Romans one through five, you have that kind of nice historical kind of typological sequence. And so here is not the idea of people uh, suppressing the truth because they have, they have this right relationship with God and it went wrong. Although I think that's partially true. I think the issue is we bring all this kind of metaphysical freight with us to the text and that guides the questions we ask. And the whole issue of biblical interpretation is learning to ask the right questions that are evoked from the text, not the questions we kind of bring to the text. And so that's kind of an overview of how I would at least approach Romans 1, at least in the text that we talked about. I don't know if you have thoughts on it and you want to push back or if you have questions or or where you want to go, but that's kind of how I see it. I think it's just simply too much. Um, I think it's just it's importing too much theological freight into the text where Paul seems to be speaking more, we might say, narratively versus we might think metaphysically. So. So who exactly is Paul referring to by people who suppress the truth? He's probably speaking of, we might say, uh, uh, pagans or people of the nations, the Roman Empire, you know, people that are kind of in that sort of sphere. Um, but he's also drawing off, we might say, the the Adamic or the uh, Noahide narrative where people, um, or there might even be echoes of Sinai here with the golden calf, you know, the creation of idols and how idols will distort the uh, the human relationship with God because of course as as Paul is very keen to say uh, 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 things cannot um, represent God it's kind of the idea of idolatry in in many sense so I think that's kind of who Paul has in mind I don't think Paul surely Paul's not speaking of himself he's not speaking of of Junia or Andronicus or Phoebe or the other men and women mentioned in other parts of Romans Paul seems to be very specifically focusing on gentile nations that have gone wrong and i think that's clear because um 
it fits in with the the narrative of the first testament with you know genesis say 1 through 11 you know babel you know that kind of whole narrative and also issues of um of what happened at sinai with the golden calf or other issues of, of that as well um and so i think he's speaking essentially to idolaters and but He's essentially trying to argue because he will go on in Romans 9 through 11 to talk about the mercy and the justice of God in dealing with people who are not in right relationship with him. And so he's kind of already laid the foundation of that. The whole point isn't the universality of sin, although sin is a universal thing. The issue is more along the lines of um, uh, in what history in Jewish history and conceptualizing of Jewish history, uh, God is or rather Paul is considered how God has acted in human history. And here it's, if we go back to Noah, God basically gave people over to what they wanted. And that uh, results in all sorts of sin and destruction and, and vice. And then of course, you know, the law comes and Abraham is considered righteous and all of that. So it's, I think Paul has kind of a narrative approach here that often gets overlooked um, because it's easy to find a proposition. You know, we just find a good proposition or, um, and that just that does it and that's all we need but it's like it's it's more difficult to think in terms of narrative and categories like that so um that's kind of what i'm thinking yeah okay that's interesting so uh what exactly in the text do you see that that makes you think of like the golden calf idea uh right before the flood all that kind of stuff well the issue is is where do when did things go wrong and so we might say so uh verse 20 uh for since the creation of the world so this is post creation so this is probably where things are beginning to go wrong. So Paul's already kind of presupposed the rupture between humankind and God, right? Um, because why else would you need the wrath of God to be revealed if we're all in right relationship with God? Um, but namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, uh, or rather have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Uh, so you might take that as a, we might say, a sort of natural theology, or at least some sort of idea of natural theology, that you can look at the cosmic order, and there's design there, there's there's intentionality there. Um, and for Christians, there's character there, you know, because that uh, creation reveals God's goodness, that God desired to create and make things and and to be in right relationship with people. And so that's kind of the background of that. But verse 21 speaks of, for although they knew God, they did not honor him. So, all right, you have the disintegration of the creator. Uh, we might say the, you know, the creator, God, and the creation. Um, so there's uh, a showing of uh, dishonoring or, and, or not giving him thanks, but becoming futile in mind, right? Or being given over to a sense of futility or, or worthlessness, you know, the, the, the de dehumanization. Um, and that includes their, their minds. And uh, that might be echo. You might find the kind of echoes of Babel there, you know, the, the creation, you know, of, and it's not as if Paul's thinking entirely sequentially, he's very compressed in the way he argues because, you know, Romans five has the law and there's a lot of compressed kind of stuff going on there. Um, but then you have the darkening of the human heart and claiming to be wise, they became fools. And you can find echoes of so-called wise people thinking they're smart in the first Testament and at least in the Pentateuch where they were foolish um, and it, what they did was they exchanged or um, exchanged the glory of, we might say, the immortal God for images. So that's already uh, an interesting idea. Um, uh, icon or icon, you know, image, um, image of mortal or corruptible or perishable humankind. So there's already a distinction being drawn between the God who is immortal and uh, humankind, which is not. And so there's already a rift in creation, which may tell us that. Um, human beings were not created to be perishable, or at least originally. So and we kind of forfeited that in the garden. Um, but then to make uh, being uh, and then uh, birds and animals and creeping things and all that sort of stuff. And so you have kind of this idea of idols and imagery there, which that kind of speaks to me of the golden calf incident. Uh, at least the golden calf incident is the best representation of the uh, the creation of, 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 of idols to represent God you know, to, you know, the golden calf. And so those are kind of the, the, the echoes I see of, of the, of the Adamic story, or at least the, you know, the story from the Pentateuch that Moses tells us. And those are kind of the, that's kind of the background, I think, to this text specifically. And Paul is kind of bringing that into the present. So that's why he can use past tense and present tense and kind of that sort of stuff and verbs. Um, so he's kind of bringing, kind of basically saying this story is, is here now. And so it's not as if this was, a, this was then, and this is now it's like, no, this, this reveals, how uh, how humankind has always kind of acted if that makes sense 
That is actually not something I've ever heard before, so that's very cool. So specifically as far as like what we can draw out of the text, what in the text do we have to say that it's an innate knowledge, like intuition, uh, possibly from birth, or has it like is it made plain to them? Was it was it learned from what was it made, or where does that come from? Well, you could argue. I mean, this is just an idea. What has been known about God is plain to them. I mean, there was no separation between God and humankind in the garden. It was plain because God showed it to them. God, I mean, what was the what's the comment in Genesis? God walked with them. God was present with them. God came down to them. You know, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so you might have that element there. Um, and here, um, what I kind of get the sense is, um, is being made plain is probably the idea that creation is the is part of the is part of the revelation of God. That is, creation is designed to make you instead of worshiping it to think bigger, quite bigger, to think better and bigger questions about where this all comes from. And so, you know, someone had to have eternal power and divine of divine nature to make it you know, for example. And so it's it has that sense of forcing people to think theologically and philosophically about something, but that does, but it seems to imply that people can do that, you know, that they can think about it. They can respond because what does he say? That people, um, they didn't glorify God or give thanks to him and became kind of futile in their thinking and intent, intentionally exchanged or gave up, you know? And so that tells us that human agency is explicitly seen in terms of, um, we, I mean, it doesn't seem to be that God predestined this or, or set this up into that sort of way. It seems to be God intentionally seems very, I wouldn't say annoyed, but God, this is, this doesn't seem to be what God wanted, if that makes sense. And so that tells us a bit about um, kind of the character of God, the, how God responds to humankind, but also um, uh, tells us about the kind of people that God is having to deal with and, and so on and so forth. Not to repeat myself, but the knowledge of God, is it something from birth or or does the text even like refer to that? Um, I think what's interesting is if the, if we read the text carefully, what seems to be straight up said is people knew and then rejected. And whatever that tells us about metaphysics or propositional truth or whatever, um, people had the freedom to basically, or God gave us, you know, we might say the freedom to reject or respond to God. And what we did instead of living in right relationship, as we see in the garden, is Adam and Eve basically forsook everything. And that's kind of, I think, um, so rather than speaking to an innate, an innate knowledge um, or an innate kind of creational kind of capacity, what seems to be said is this is in terms of revelation. God revealed God's self and revelation doesn't necessarily, revelation and intuition there, you need to actually, the, the presuppositionalists might have to argue that those two need to be combined. Um, if that makes sense, you know, so it's kind of hard to say, you know, you have intuition, but you need revelation. You know what I mean? Because, you know, how do you get this, these two things? What seems to be the case with Paul here is people were in darkness and God gave them light. And that's the whole message of the incarnation in John one, right? Um, the light came into the world, but the darkness could not su suppress it or, 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 or push it out or contain it, so to speak. And so the purpose is more on the revelation of God to humankind versus what we do or do not know about God. And it seems to present, seems to presume that even though we knew God, it seems to imply that there was a right relationship there that got ruptured. Hey guys, so we had some technical difficulty issues. Here are the interviews were scheduled on a different date. You mentioned that Romans 1 kind of references Genesis 1 to 11, like quite a bit. It says, for since the creation of the world, it says, for although they knew God, it's kind of like referencing like a relationship like kind of how Genesis says that uh, Adam and Eve walked with God. It said, it says, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals, reptiles. It says, create things rather than the creator. Uh, but then, of course, when you read on, it says, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Do you think that's possibly a reference to Genesis 6? It's a good question. Uh, uh, we, we often forget that, that Paul... Um, uh, has a very might we might say grand view of, of Genesis or grand view of creation. Uh, it's it appears negatively in like you know the the text on women as negative examples. You know when things go wrong, uh, when uh, or even his language concerning sex. You know a lot of it is grounded in we might say the creational ideal or the Edenic ideal versus post Edenic. Um, so yeah, Genesis six. Uh, that's probably one of the references. You know the the flood narrative and stuff like that. Um, in, incidentally, uh, one of the most powerful way, the vision or uh, depictions of that is from the movie Noah, 
right? You know, I don't right. know if you've seen it with Russell Crowe. Not not a great movie, but <laughs> certainly an interesting movie. Uh, yeah. Very interesting movie. I, I loved, I'd say, 60% of it, then was bored the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> but the the scene where he looks around and sees all this horrific stuff happening and the evil of, of human hearts and stuff, then he makes a mad, a mad dash for, for the arc. Uh, and that's kind of how I view it. Uh, I, I think Genesis 6 and kind of the whole narrative of everything, the heart's being continually wicked. And, you know, you, so you can see it's it's not that I'm arguing that there's linguistic parallels, per se, between, say, the Septuagint mm -hmm. and, and Paul, although you probably could find a few here and there. It's more thematic continuity, uh, Paul. So um, I think Genesis 6 is certainly uh, a reasonable one. One is also the issues of, uh, say, Levitical law and questions of that sort of stuff. Um, engaging in, in sexuality, whether it's um, same sex or or uh, or disordered from a heterosexual standpoint, you know, a lot of Levitical laws, frankly, mm -hmm. towards heterosexual people. You know, if you think about it, um, so it's just interesting. Yeah, I think it's I, I think that's a really perceptive point. I, I thought of that, but it's the fact that you said it made me think more about it. So yeah, no, I think that's at least that probably is an echo or kind of a a reverberation that kind of is influencing his at least worldview as he talks about uh, Romans one. And, kind of so on and so forth yeah well um so i've like i've actually read that in commentaries that it could be a reference to genesis 6 referring to like the sons of god and unnatural relationship with like well i guess it depends on what your view of genesis 6 with the sons of god is but right. and then genesis uh or uh, romans 127 but it also says in the same way the men are also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another men committed shameful shameful acts with other men so I guess people um, have used that to say, oh, this isn't referring to Genesis 6 because there's no homosexuality with men here. But I guess if you take kind of like a narrative, like a kind of category type of view of Romans 1, then that works because it's not referring to like, yeah, maybe it could be referring to these specific stories, but it's also referring to like a whole bunch of different things. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I, I think you could argue too that, um, and I think I mentioned this, that, that Paul has is kind of a the decline of civilization narrative, yep. you know, mm -hmm. when things just break down, um, go wrong. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the brokenness of even our bodies, as Paul talks about in Romans 1, but also we see that throughout. Uh, I, mean, I saw a tweet today that made me laugh. It's like, can we really get mad at Cain for hitting Abel? It's not like you ever, no one's ever died before. <laughs> so it's one of those things. But even then, like, even the things that, you know, obviously... Um, go wrong happen in a way that's incredibly severe and people are living with consequences from oh. that right mm -hmm. and so i think there is a sense in which uh the only the only difficulty with uh the genesis 6 romans 1 kind of you know the correspondence is paul seems to have gentiles or nations in view or, mm -hmm. or we would say you know crudely pagans you know non 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 uh not non-jews that's not the right word non uh non-christian jews and or gentiles right the family of god we might say and so that's not it's not an exact parallel because Genesis six is obviously speaking more of a corporate whole for humanity. But I mean, even then, there's maybe some similarities as well. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it's an interesting conversation. I'm sure there have been monographs on it, commentaries on it, but um, it's an so, interesting question. Yeah. All right. So something else I wanted to mention was in verse. Um, well, in the in the passage, there's all these different tenses that Paul uses. So like there's a present referring to it says is being revealed in verse 18 it says who suppressed the truth so that people are without excuse what may be known about god is plain to them so all these are present tense things that are happening of course then it goes into the past and then it says shifts from the past um then they have become in verse 29 like what 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 do you think paul was trying to get at when he's like changing the tenses here yeah um we should be wary not of of uh, of tenses, but of importing a lot of theological freight into tenses. There's a huge debate on, say, the aorist tense in Greek. Um, there's been this huge, you know, aorist usually is defined as an event, just a past event, you know, mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily speak to the perfected aspect of it or the accomplished act of it, only that an event occurred. You know, uh, he drove down the street, you know, uh, which in, which can apply many different things in, in, in kind of uh, issues in Greek and verbal aspect and stuff like that. Um, the tenses changing, I think, is interesting insofar it kind of reveals the ongoing uh, corruptivization or degradation of humankind. And I think you, you're actually, you said it uh, helpfully, uh, Zach, was, um, I'm pulling up verse 29, so stalling, 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 just so I can see it. Yeah, they were, they were filled, you know, which is, you know, a perfect tense, but even then there's a sense in which a lot of these verbs are all predicated on the initial act of something going wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And if we think in terms of epicycles, right? So we think we read, say, the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation often sounds like it's repeating motifs or themes in kind of a cyclical way where it kind of comes back to this original idea, but kind of builds on it until the end, you know, and stuff like that. Um, here um, you have what we might call a foretaste of what Paul talks about in Romans 5, you know, sin entering into the cosmic order and kind of wreaking havoc. And that gets picked up succinctly in, in Romans 7, which may, I would argue is a reference to Adam, you know, the person in Adam or the Adamic person. But we see a lot here of Paul's kind of preempting or kind of setting up this sort of argument to kind of conti- where he continually kind of references or goes back to it. He's continually building on this sort of theme. And what I love about what you pointed out is they were filled or they did this or, or, or they suppressed the truth or these sorts of things. It seems to suggest intentionality and agency on the part of people acting in response, either positively or negatively, to God or to God's work in creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's far be, for, far from it being uh, about kind of the the mindset that uh, governs apologetic debates per se. It's far more uh, emphasizing that uh, humankind has fully participated in this we might say sin world, this this reality of sin or Adam, and it kind of pushes us away. It it, it forces us to ask just different questions, you know, because if we come to it, you know, like asking what presuppositionalists are asking. You're, you're not getting the full sense of what Paul is actually arguing. You're focusing on a very narrow kind of piece that's not irrelevant, but it's certainly um, a piece of what Paul's arguing, but it's not the main thrust of what he's arguing, if that makes sense. So it's kind of missing the forest for the trees, so to speak, in mm-hmm. that sort of argumentation. That's understandable, yeah. Yeah. Um, so just to harp on, like, specifically who's being talked about, because this is something that just, like, we have to be completely clear about. Um, not that you haven't been, but just, you know, just to be completely clear. No, for sure, yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so you mentioned like this kind of referring to Gentile nations that have gone wrong. Uh, the whole thing is about idolatry, like what these people who suppress the truth, they do. They, they worship uh, the created rather than the creator. It says, uh, first, for, um, some people that think that like it's referring to everybody who suppresses everyone like that isn't, I guess, isn't saved or isn't Christian. Some would say like it's uh, verse 18 says all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then it says verse 20 says God's attributes have been clearly perceived so that people, people like it doesn't say like, you know, these past people. It doesn't say like Gentiles. It doesn't say idolaters. It says people kind of like generally are without excuse. So like some people would think that means like literally everyone. That's why they take that view. It's like, what do you think about that? I mean, it's not it's not an impo- impossible understanding. I mean, I, I can see the logic of it, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think I would push back just in the sense of um, what Paul talks about earlier on, uh, the righteousness that is being is revealed, and that of course has the issue of okay, is this is being revealed or has been revealed in in kind of a maybe a pre-creational sense, you know, maybe like a natural theology kind of thing. Or is it uh, revealed in the sense of incarnation, right? You know, think about Romans 1, right? The very beginning, you know, Christ is, is exalted and resurrected and a son of God in power. And so it kind of just brings up a whole host of kind of different questions uh, insofar as we're asking, um, is this applying to literally every single individual who's ever lived? Or is Paul speaking kind of universally in the present, you know, kind of as he is penning it? Uh, is, he cert- is he thinking about... Um, is he thinking about would he include himself in this? You know, so how, how far, how hard do we press the universality of it? I think what you can press universally is the universal impact of sin, and that's of course, you know, um, what is talked about in Romans five, Romans three, um, Romans seven, and kind of on and on and on. But to to universalize it kind of seems to kind of push against the argument I think Paul is making, even if I think you can make a reason uh, kind of inference out of it, if that makes sense. So it's not as if the text is being twisted or or they're or they're lying or anything like that, but it seems to be over-interpreting the point Paul is trying to make when his point seems to be much more on the universality of sin versus kind of the um, and so for example, uh, you'll have people argue that um, when it comes to the all passages, right? You know the you know justification of life for all people. You know he desires sure. to have mercy on all. The the usual retort, if unless you're a universalist or say you're a Wesleyan like me, usual retort from most Calvinists or presuppositionalists, you know, I'm not saying the two are identical, but they tend to fall in the same camp. So just generally mm-hmm. speaking, that turns into all types of people or all kinds of people or, or Jews and Gentiles. Consider verse six, which says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. But Matthew 20, 28 says Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, not every single person. So again, this means all kinds. 
Yep. And so you can see kind of the, there, there's a willingness to be universal in some sense here, but not a willingness to be universal in another sense. And I think the issue is what I would like to see is, and I'm not accusing them of incoherence, I'm, accused, I'm suggesting that there needs to be more consistency drawn between these two points. And that's just kind of an example I would give. Um, and there's more that could be said, but um, I think I think Paul's points, broader point is the the righteous will live by faith. So obviously this isn't every single person, you know, uh, especially, you know, the language of will live. Um, and so there's a future or middle passive there, but also seem, uh, or, or middle tense suggesting that this is something that is uh, the human person does in response to God, in response to the righteousness of God that has been revealed or is is revealed. And so there is this sense in which you have to ask how much human agency is involved in this and what and how do human persons respond to the revelation of God? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think Paul goes by denying what God basically maybe uh, by denying what God has done, maybe the character of God, you know, the God who raised Jesus from the dead and so on and so forth. You are suppressing the truth in that sense or you're, you're you know, arguing against it or, or, or having a having a row with it, so to speak. Um, and so I think maybe there's just a, a lack of kind of consistency across the hermeneutical spectrum. And Roman seems to be the place where all, all theological method runs and fails and tries to you know, pick up the pieces and across the board, theologically speaking. Romans, uh, the more I re read Romans, the more I'm like, boy, no, no theological method has a claim on Romans, which I, just, I, don't, I, I find helpful, to be honest. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that. Um, other possible views. So like you kind of mentioned in the beginning that you're not like, like you're hundred percent certain that this is the specific view. Like, is there other any like more credible views that you could think of, or is it just kind of like, this is like, Oh, 80% right. And then, you know, the other ones might be part of like 20% right kind of thing. Oh, the second one. I mean, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm confident I'm right, but there's always pieces that'll, you know, if you're, if you're seeking to be honest with the text and seeking to mm -hmm. always learn and read, you're always going to find something that either challenges your view, which means you have to correct a little bit or tweak it a little bit. Yeah, or if totally. you're just straight up wrong, like I've been, you just chuck it and take the whole new system. You know, um, it's more a matter of how much how much certitude you place in your system and how much explanatory power does it actually have? So, uh, for example, you know, uh, you know, if we read this a little bit in Romans one, you know, from a presuppositional standpoint, that makes sense of this specific passage insofar as we adopt certain theological presuppositions, you know. A form of predeterminism or compatibilism, you know, as it relates to human freedom, a certain view of uh, God's relationship with the world. Does God love everyone? How does this work? You know, and so there's those sorts of questions that kind of arise from that. Um, and the presuppositionalist and or the Calvinist has to kind of account for those before presuppositionalism can be used as a as an interpretive method, uh, so to speak. And they can do that. I'm not saying it can't be done or yep. it shouldn't be done mm -hmm. or anything, but totally. it requires a it requires a lot more legwork than I've seen kind of done here. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Um, so I want to talk about uh, Romans. While we're in Romans, Romans 8, 38 to 39, use, a verse often used uh, to say that, uh, you know, Paul seems 100% certain that nothing can separate us from the love of God. God can give us certainty kind of thing. 100% certainty, can't be wrong kind of certainty. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, so you want to read yeah. it? Or you want me to? I'll, I'll read it. Yeah, this is, I'll read from the, the NIV. Um, uh, for I'm, and this is his great treatise, just to give a little context on the resurrection or emancipation of our bodies from sin and death and stuff like that. And just a few passages before, um, and it's a long discourse on the benefit of being in Christ. You know, the, of course, Romans eight one mm -hmm. is there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are who are in Christ Jesus. And verse uh, 38 says, for I am sure or I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as we say at church, uh, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Uh, the first thing I notice is already an issue of how you translate the word patho. Uh, the ver Greek verb patho, which translated here in the ESB is I am sure, or in this case of the NIV is I'm convinced, or for I'm convinced. Mm -hmm. um, that usually has the denotation of being persuaded or, or having been persuaded by, say, argumentation or, 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 or something like that. And we can see, I mean, this, this, I'll just do a quick search of the verb here. Um, you know, for example, uh, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd uh, in Matthew 27, uh, 20, uh, 27, 20. And there's, if, it, if there is one verse I'm thinking of, 
I think this is interesting. Um, let me pull it up real quick. It is, if it's the verse I'm thinking of, then it's a really interesting verse. Well, all, all verses are interesting, of course, but <laughs> there's, I, th I want to say it's in 2 Corinthians. Yep, 2 Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians 5.11, and I'll read it again in the NIV. Since then, we know it, uh, we know what it is to fear or have reverence for the Lord. Uh, we try to persuade others. What we, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. So you can already see there's a sense in which um, having knowing or having understood something, we therefore can go and persuade others. We can convince them of the truth. And so there is an element of, we may say, synergism or, or, or um, normal argumentation. You know, the whole point is we, it's not that God persuades, it's we persuade because of what God has done, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think with Romans, uh, with Romans 8, 28, Paul can only make this claim if he is confident that God raised Jesus from the dead, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter, you know, yeah. Paul can only make these sorts of claims if he is persuaded that God is who God said he is. And that can only be true if Jesus is raised bodily from the dead. And so I think the translation here would be, if I'm being a little dynamic with it to kind of get the point of what I think Paul's getting at is, for I have been convinced or been persuaded that all these things uh, of these benefits in Christ, neither death, nor life, nor angels, or demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, you know, these sorts of things that wage war on God, you know, that God is at war within the world. Um, Paul is not convinced in the sense of, you know, epistemic kind of these high and high things. No, he had this relationship with God that was revealed in Christ that has been shown to him to be good and holy and true. And it's, he can say these things because we are more than conquerors in verse 37, through him who loved us. So this relationship is based and predicated on the love of God. And we see that in Romans 5, you know, Christ died for the ungodly and these sorts of ideas. And it's, it seems to kind of press the text in kind of a, in a, 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 into metaphysical certitude when that's not the point of it. The point is I'm not metaphysically certitude certain of my wife's love for me, but I know she loves me because I see it. I've experienced it daily and in these sorts of things. And so I think Paul's speaking relationally versus metaphysically. And I think here it's much more about relationality and um, and being persuaded through demonstration of, of key facts and key uh, added that God is love and in Christ, there is no condemnation. And that can be demonstrated at the cross that God did not condemn Jesus to death, but raised him from the dead. Nice. That was wonderful. <laughs> but I, I think that's powerful for our apologetics, right? Or, or our, yeah. our, our missional engagement in the world or whatever, because the entire point is um, we can see and we bear witness, we testify. You know, Paul speaks of, you know, uh, this testifying or we bear witness to what God has done for us in Christ. And therefore we can go and take that to others. And what is that? That's the message of reconciliation in, in 2 Corinthians 5. You know, we are, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and we are ambassadors for Christ. And we plead to, plead to you for the sake of Christ, reconcile yourselves with God, you know, there's intentionality. God has wiped the slate clean, come back into the family. And that's kind of the issue. And that's where, I, that's why I think it's, uh, it preaches really well <laughs> because you can actually say Christ has achieved this reconciliation for all people everywhere. And you are invited to participate in this. And I don't think the reason people say no is because, well, Adam is much more interesting than Christ. Yeah. So to speak, well, be coy about something it. That I noticed, something I noticed was that like, it just in these two verses, like these are topics that like are often like talked about with apologetics wise, but something you talked about with Romans one is that it's just like people like completely miss, miss the message here a lot of times when they're focused on these other things, when there's like deep theology rooted in each of these verses. Say that um, everything which begins to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore it must have a cause. It must be an uncaused cause and that uncaused cause is God. We use all these books and have all these arguments to try and reason to God. We have arguments that conclude God. God is not a God that we can reason to. He's the God that we can't reason without. Paul in Colossians 2 says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why do you think Paul told us that? He tells us in the very next Verse. I tell you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. What do we have? Fine-sounding arguments. This is Paul's warning to Timothy. Guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely 
called knowledge. What is false knowledge? See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. All right, so let's go to Colossians 2, 3 to 8. And this one's a super fun one because it's uh, one of those ones people like to use uh, to say that philosophy is bad. <laughs> so uh, let's get into that. All right. Oh, yes, this one. Yeah, I, I remember seeing this one come up. I, I get, the, the, yeah, this one's interesting because I get the logic of what's saying. I just don't think it's being properly interpreted or extracted. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, by all means. All right. So, yeah, this one's super common as far as presuppositional apologetics goes. It starts off by saying, Colossian 2 4 says, I say this in an order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Okay, so why is, what, what is he saying um, so that people won't be convinced of these arguments? He's saying, in whom Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you're a presuppositionalist, that sounds a lot like uh, the transcendental argument for God that says, you know, God is the precondition for knowledge, intelligibility, all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, you know, presuppositionalism is kind of against the, the argument for traditional apologetics kind of thing, where, you know, you're trying to prove God with evidence or whatever. So it seems like Paul, is Paul the author of Colossians? Is that right? I think, I think he is. There's debate about it, but I think Paul wrote uh -huh. Colossians, yeah. Okay, so Paul's, you know, and Paul's just trying to say, hey, don't do these arguments because you have this. Jesus is needed for wisdom and knowledge. And then, of course, later it says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Oh, what is human tradition? Trying to prove God. So uh, what do you think of these passages? Yeah, I, I can see, like I said, the logic. I think with Colossians, you have kind of a debate over who's Paul arguing with, right? Who, who's his interlocutors? And the consensus seems to be either some sort of syncretism, some sort of syncretistic, you know, religions kind of being mingled together or some sort of proto or pre-Gnostic kind of tradition. Um, in any sense, what you have here, of course, is an ideology based on other things. And we can actually go to the end of the passage, um, language about um, uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and talking about uh, uh, these regulations and self-imposed uh, self worship at the end of the chapter, verse 23, false humility. And what is also interesting, um, their uh, their uh, severity or harsh treatment, abuse of the body. So there is this sense in which um, the interlocutor has a very dim view of the human body. And that's, of course, if we read Romans 8, Paul has a very strong view of the human body insofar as you're not getting a new one in heaven. You're not going to be cast for the ghost. We look forward to the resurrection or rather the liberation of our bodies, not being liberated from our bodies, you know? So there's not this kind of Gnostic kind of idea here. Um, but that's kind of what Paul's arguing the people he's arguing with. And so when we get to here, you know, with a, um, know the mystery of God, namely Christ, or who is Christ. And so Christ is the embodiment of the mystery of God made flesh. And that's the big Christological claim in verse nine, um, for in Christ, all the fullness of, of deity or divinity, yeah, deity uh, dwells bodily or in bodily form. And so the mystery of God is incarnate. The mystery of God is in fleshed for us. And, and so we can kind of, uh, again going what paul said we can test and see that christ is is here that christ was with us that christ was present and so verse four says i say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments and the question is well of course there's you should put air quotes around those you know plausible arguments yeah because um, that's kind of sarcasm or paul being sassy but what i think he's getting at is what are these arguments are these just arguments in general are these just fine sounding arguments in general or is it more about having a, uh, a negative view of the human body, a negative view of the self, kind of a rival philosophy that seems to promote forms of asceticism, forms of or asceticism in an abusive sense, not an asceticism as a spiritual practice. You know, there are differences to be said there. Uh, mistreatment of the body or severity of the body um, and stuff like that. And so it's like, okay, are, are these, is he talking about arguments in relation to those, those sorts of practices or ideas? Um, and I, I think I think that makes best sense because, you know, verse uh, chapter two, verse 16, therefore, uh, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival or new month celebration on a Sabbath day and these sorts of rituals or maybe syncretistic aspects of, of pagan, we would say pagan religion and pagan. I'm not speaking negatively. I'm just it's a common kind of phrase, you know, non-Christian religion. 
And so Paul is essentially arguing that Christ is, of course, the embodiment of God incarnate. Christ is the lens by which we view everything. And don't be persuaded that Christ isn't at the center of all reality, the center of all that we do. Now, of course, that doesn't get you to presuppositionalism because every Christian affirms that you know, if Jesus is Lord, then Jesus is Lord over everything. Um, and then you get to the language of uh, not being taken captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy. So already I'm kind of chuckling because if Paul wanted to be a good presuppositionalist, he would say just philosophy, not deception or and hollow, right? So he's qualifying the type of philosophy. <laughs> it's not mm. that all philosophy, but he's qualifying what kind of philosophy, which is dependent or in accordance with human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And so you even have the language of the worship of angels or worshiping with angels in Colossians. And so there's all these kind of principalities, powers, supernatural evil, mysterious forces that are going on uh, in, in these sort of assemblies. And so he's going basically not this. The problem isn't philosophy because Paul is using a lot of philosophical rhetoric, especially in Philippians. But what he does say is hollow and uh, deceptive or misleading. So philosophy is not by nature that. And so or at least, you know, good philosophy um, is about asking questions and learning and seeking after truth. You know, I mean, it's just it's like logic. It's just it's just what it is. Mm -hmm. But philosophy can be used in a hollow or deceptive sense. And I think it just goes too far to have Paul saying basically what the presuppositionalist is saying about philosophy or, or, or often logic. You know, oh, you're a philosopher. I just read the Bible, which is incredibly philosophical because that implies a whole lot of things about a whole lot of things. Oh, so yeah. I don't know if that helps. But that's, kind of, that's just kind of what I see going on in the passage. Yeah, no, perfect. I like it. All right. Romans eleven thirty six says... For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And we get to kind of get that language again that everything is from God, and uh, which kind of supports the idea that God is the precondition for not only knowledge and truth and rationality and all that, but everything. Yeah, and that was, this is one of those where I kind of I tilted my head a little bit when I read it because I was like, I'm not sure how. I, I get the argument being used, obviously, but it's one of those where I'm like, I, I suppose you could make that argument. Um, but what I see here is, and this is the problem with a lot of theology and philosophy and stuff. And again, I'm not saying all philosophy or theology, but just mm -hmm. um, there is a sense of being kind of unmoored from the text and kind of kind of being separated from the text a little bit. And what we see in Romans 11 is Paul's kind of capstone argument in response to the reason why Israel is unfaithful, or rather why Israel is not accepting Jesus as their Messiah. And so that, and the question hinges on, um, is God good? Because if God is basically the, the logic of Romans 9 through 11 in a nutshell, very cursory is um, Israel is not accepting Jesus as Messiah. Israel is God's people. So either it begs the question, is God, un, is God, um, is God good? because is God kind of leaving Israel off or cutting Israel off in order just to go after the Gentiles and let, you know, let the Jews kind of go off on their own mm -hmm. into, you know, Gehenna or hell or, or just apostasy or whatever, or is it on like, what is the reason why Israel isn't doing it? So basically Paul goes, well, there's always been a faithful remnant of Israel, you know, um, Jacob, have I loved, but Esau have I, you know, it's favor and you know, favoring language. You know, I preferred this person over that one or I chose this person over that, but we have to ask what the purpose of all of this was. You know, and it demonstrates that God has been faithful to Israel and not to the exclusion of Gentiles, but to in order that the nations might be blessed, that the Gentiles and the pagans who were previously estranged from God are brought back into the family of faith. And Romans 11:32 and following here is basically his his jumping up and down, screaming, this is the point I'm making when he says, for God has imprisoned all persons in, in disobedience so that he may be merciful upon all. Um, the entire point of all of this is God is treating every single person, Jew and Gentile, in the same manner, albeit with certain standards. You know, some had the law, some didn't. But um, the whole point of this entire exercise is that all would eventually be brought in and shown mercy. The, the chief object of God's work through all of this has been to demonstrate God's mercy. And we see that in Romans 3, where God presents Christ as the Hilasterion, the mercy seat. Um, by passing over the sins of committed in the past, basically God is incredibly patient, and that is a demonstration of His mercy. Um, 
and kind of so on and so forth. But I think to kind of go, to get all presuppositionalist here, it seems to be more missing the doxology of what Paul's doing. This is a message about worship. It's poetry. It's exalting the goodness and character of God who is incredibly merciful and generous to people, especially faithless people who have cut themselves off from him. But yet all somehow in mysterious ways, all Israel will be saved and the full number of Gentiles will come in and God's plan of salvation will be shown manifest because at the end of the day, God is a good God. God is a God worthy of worship. And so it seems to me, it kind of just goes really far to kind of argue about apologetic method in this verse from any perspective, because the entire point is Paul is offering an extended argument about the faithfulness of God, not about, you know, the transcendental argument or, or, or these sorts of things, if that makes sense. Hmm. That's good. It's right. a much bigger question, maybe as a way of trying to get at than that. Oh yeah. It seems like a lot of these are about that uh, much bigger way. All right. Uh, Hebrews 11, three says the sun is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided justifications or purification for sins he sat down at the right hand for the majesty in heaven and of course the reason uses god is the reason why we have the laws of nature logic um and uh, something that also additionally um often used for transcendental argument is to say that uh under like an atheistic worldview, like we wouldn't expect things to stay the same. We wouldn't think, expect the past to be like the present. So, um, so what we see here, Hebrews eleven three says, he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. Like he's keeping it all together for us. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. They say they translate in in Greek. So I'm looking in Hebrews is very difficult Greek. It's it's, it's <laughs> woo Greek. So it's woo Greek. That's a good word for it. Uh, but so you have the verb tapanta uh, and the word of his, word of power or the word of his power. Um, Hebrews doesn't have a lot of being verbs, and it's sort of kind of having to supply verbs in order for the sentence to make sense. Because you're just like, Ugh. Um, but here he is sustaining or upholding. So it's a you know, it's just a normal participle. He to get the universe here but it's not but it's not the word for world or cosmos or universe it's pas or panta all things which you could translate as universe i suppose but um it seems more expansive and precise to say he upholds all the things or he sustains all things or he keeps or or more woodenly he he bears or you know like you would on your shoulders he bears all things he is the upholder or sustainer of all things and making it and but it's, it's an interesting jump uh, Zach, just to go from he sustains or upholds all things as creator, as sovereign Lord of all things, if premise A, to then get to premise, sounds like premise D, you know, in conclusion, you know, I'm not making a syllogism, but in terms of sequence, you know, A, B, C, D, D, therefore you have, the, you know, presuppositionalism. It's kind of like, okay, there's, there's two points in here that I don't see. There's a big leap to this kind of argument. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's like, well, it's in order to make this argument, you have to buy into the law. You basically have to buy into presuppositionalism. And and that's something I've seen a lot, it just in any apologetic method, there's a sense in which, and I'm not immune from this. I mean, I'm reading all these books and I'm being challenged every day. The instant I read a book, I'm automatically having to change my mind on something. But there is a sense in apologetic method debates um, that we're kind of going to the Bible to look for justification for, uh, for something that works. And presuppositionalism mm -hmm. as an argument or as a method is very powerful in certain instances and certain questions. Presuppositionalism is really great for cross-examination because it forces people to, you know, it, it's analytic, basically in my mind, it's like analytic theology or analytic philosophy, break down literally everything and why, 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 what is this, what is this, what is this? And that's very helpful for cross-examination. That's why I think presuppositionalism is helpful on that level. You know, I, I, or at least as a tool in the tool bag, so to speak. Um, but I just, and here, I, in terms of scriptural exegesis, getting to, to that point, I just don't enough scriptural evidence to get there. Um, there's a few premises that kind of are implied in the interpretation here that I don't see substantiated or sustained, maybe to be s silly, uh, by the text itself. Because um, all it is saying is all things, and, are we, and we're then meant to ask all things in terms of the laws of logic. You know, it's like the Paul or the author of Hebrews, not Paul. <laughs> Did the author of Hebrews actually mean the laws of logic, the laws of reason, or is he thinking creationally, the creator of all things? You know, and 
if we kind of bring Paul into the discussion, Colossians 1 is very clear on that. He is before all things as creator, you know, and the same with, you know, the gospel of John. So it seems more that he's talking about the creation of, 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 of matter, of, of things, not of abstract things like the laws of logic. Although, like I said, it's not unreasonable to extrapolate that, but it does have to be extrapolated. It's not immediately obvious to me that's what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is attempting to kind of argue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so not terribly clear exactly like what specifically is being um, is being sustained, I guess. But in regards to that, um, so would you say something like um, sustaining? Like when I think of the word sustain, I think of like so how someone would sustain, like like uh, take care of a house, or maybe like take care of people, like provide food. Is that kind of along the lines, or what are you thinking there? Um. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that up, upholds or sustains, um, um, conserve is one, you know, to kind of, you might think sustain, like, a, here's an example, uh, and don't, you can't press this too far, but as a mother sustains a baby in the womb, you know, um, the whole point isn't about the abstract reality of the child, the, the whole point is the creation of the child and the formation of the child and, mm -hmm. and bringing that child to bear. So I think that's an apt, I think that's probably a, a more helpful image because it kind of gets us away from the abstraction of all these other, you know, implicit things and kind of focuses on the materiality of what Tapanta or, or, or the, you know, the universe or all things is mm -hmm. kind of referring to. I think yeah. it's creation itself and not the abstract. Although again, that gets into William Lane Craig and abstract objects. And I, as a new Testament guy, I just kind of go, yeah, I'm done. Good for you. I, I, I can't even, I'm not even going to attempt to, to learn about this. I, I'm, I can barely keep up with Greek stuff as, as, as <laughs> I nice i feel the same way all right so uh so we have um so like that was the main things and then we have like uh four or five verses kind of like people use to say that you can have epistemic certainty you want to get into those i mean we could i i I'm just looking at them you know uh one john five uh luke one the prologue of luke john 17 luke again and acts uh acts um just kind of, you know, broadly saving a lot of it is centered on no or knowing for certain. Um, again, we the, the argument seems to be just kind of generally speaking, a lot of these passages, uh, uh, speaking like Paul said, you know, about persuasion or confidence, having confidence or even certainty is fine. But what do they mean by certainty? The certainty is based on revelation. It's based on historical realities. It's based on prior uh, prior understanding of who Jesus is or what Jesus did or what someone saw or what someone authored. And it again, seems to go really far in the other direction to kind of build on that. Um, basically um, an idea might be, you know, okay, my son's name is Nolan. You've never met Nolan in the flesh. Um, so, um, but I can show you photos of Nolan. I can show you his birth certificate, but you've never seen Nolan in the flesh. And it kind of begs this, or brings up all these questions of you know, what kind of confidence level would you need in order to believe I have a son named Nolan? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, I've, I've never seen Nolan in the flesh, but I, I see photos of him and they all look the same, you know, and I can go back. And, and so you have all this kind of data material to kind of look at. And it's like, you know, at what point do we talk about certainty? You know, at what point do we talk about epistemic certainty? Um, and what seems to be the case with a lot of these texts is that you may know with great or, or strong confidence, you, you may know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he said he was or that God raised him from the dead. Um, it's not meant to be, here, there we go, that, that's what I was getting. It's not meant to be propositional certainty. And that's kind of where we, as philosophers, I kind of see the proposition is certain, meaning it is not only valid, it is a brute fact, it is all these different things. And you can tell I'm already on thin ice because I, I, I'm not a philosopher. But you can kind of get the, the idea I'm trying to get that. Um, it kind of takes the relationality of the event and the testimony of the event for propositionalism. And I think scripture has propositions in them. Paul asserts them, God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. That is a proposition. You know, that's as true as it gets. But all these things about testimony material are predicated more on the truthfulness of the event versus what the person thinks about them. So it's like, you can have that, you can be certain that what I'm telling you is true, but that's predicated on me telling you in a relational corresponding way. So again, I think it's more just a matter of over-interpretation of the data from a standpoint that ironically is presupposed. And as an extrapolation, it may be valid. Like I'm not saying that it's all bunk or all stupid or anything like that, but I am saying 
there needs to be more work done. And it's not fair just to kind of presuppose your view without arguing for it and deriving it from the text. And so, hmm. and, and that applies to anyone doing any sort of exegetical work. I'm not, that, I, I, I try to hold myself to that exact same standard. So, yeah, totally. by what standard? Well, the one I think scripture says, but okay. Nice. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so just to be completely clear, so it sounds like you're saying that uh, a kind of combination like of, of the previous one we went over that um, when it says something like certainty or no, that like the language and like what is kind of like the language, the words you're using, like they're using words that like persuaded, confident kind of thing compared to like epistemic certainty um, is question is there any greek words that um could have been used to say oh this is like 100 percent certain or is this just like something that they had no idea about uh, that's a really good question um off the top of my head i can't think of one but i'm, I'm sure they exist in fact i'd be very i'm very confident they do exist um here's here's one we can look at this um this is Acts 2. This is one of the passages you had uh, right here, Acts 2, 36. And I'll, I'll read it in the NIV. Uh, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. So that assured is kind of, or the ESV says, no for certain. Um, and then, of course, God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the word there most likely refers to something like um, assuredly in the sense of beyond a doubt. But that's still, of course, not equivalent to epistemic metaphysical, uh, what is the phrase in Watchmen? Uh, absolutely certain metaphysical certitude or something like that. Some sort metaphysical of absolute certitude. Metaphysical certitude. A metaphysical certitude. A metaphysical certitude. Ultra metaphysical certitude. That's ultra metaphysical certitude. <laughs> some sort of weird phrase where I was like, oh boy, I, I need to quote that one day. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think it's uh, to know, you know, gnosko, uh, just a normal Greek word for knowledge or knowing, can often have a sexual euphemism. Abraham knew his wife, or, you know, Old Testament, they knew their wives, you know, kind of thing, um, or understand um, that you can understand with assurance that, you know, so it's like, you could say something like that. You can be confident that what I'm telling you is true and good, um, not um, epistemic certainty. But again, um, my goal isn't to say you can't be epistemically certain about anything. I'm sure I, you know, I'm not saying that at all. I am saying there's a difference between having assurance that that an event is true versus having 100 percent guaranteed certainty about the event itself um because if everything is you know what's more probable what's more likely to have happened then god raised jesus from the dead is is very probable based on the new testament evidence and the new testament data data um so it's one of those things where i'm for being confident and for being assured of all these sorts of things i'm not saying we have anything to fear i'm not making those claims at all um, but I just don't think presuppositionalism sets itself up as being any better because if, if you think about it, uh, just as a, just a pastor, I, I was a pastor for almost four years. You tell someone that something is one is is that way, and if they find one thing that isn't that way, the whole thing comes tumbling down like a yeah. house of cards. And if you're involved in theological education, like you are, you know, teaching and, and gifting people, and you know, you have to be careful with what you say, but you never sugarcoat. You know, you never go. We know 100% that Paul wrote Colossians. We're 75% certain that he wrote Colossians, and here are the good reasons why, you know. Um, it's just people don't, and that's the thing at the end of the day, that's why the church has all these problems, you know, image control and all that, is because people don't like the fact they've been sold a bill of goods that is false, or they don't like being sold a car that has no engine inside. And I think presuppositionalism pastorally can potentially run into that problem. Not saying it has to, not that it's required, but just from an outside perspective as a New Testament guy, I think, um, assurance and confidence are good and holy and true, uh, but we need to be careful of not overstepping or overselling what we believe to be true. The truth should stand on its own. Yeah, yeah, and just to be clear, like you can take these verses to mean exactly what you, like what you're saying they are, um, Nick, as in like oh confidence, but there are also some presuppositions that would also say we can have certainty because of other things. Um, there's a whole different, but this is a different conversation from like the topic today. No, right, absolutely, cool. yeah. And, and I, I'm not, I'm not claiming I'm the expert or I, I or I'm the final word on the subject at all. It's yeah, totally. just my opinion and what I think. But yeah, no, I get that's that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, and also that like you know, when I say okay, this is the view of presuppositional. Like something I've learned from like talking to people in the community is that 
there are literally so many different variations and like you know there, you have one group that says oh this is definitely the one and then this one definitely what we should be doing and it's just like all right there's literally so much variation like it's it's craziness and then of course i did a q a with my patrons and one of them was what what are the differences in arminianism and you know i'm, I'm kind of a wesleyan on that uh -huh. but i was like okay well reformed arminians tend to believe these things but there's variations of them there's gradations there's nuances Wesleyans, uh, one of the jokes was, you know, the question, the difference between the two is how much Holy Spirit, because Wesleyans kind of gave birth to Pentecostalism, the Assemblies of God, Charismatics. And it's not to say Reformed Arminians aren't Charismatic or aren't, you know, Trinitarian. That's a distinctive. That's more kind of culturally, theologically derived. But it's like, just as within Arminian, the, the Arminian camp, whatever that means, um, there are gradations of views from a sh from shared perspectives even if there are different new ways of working out these sorts of questions you know prevenient grace entire sanctification women in ministry there are gradations involved even amongst people that agree on on these topics so presuppositionalism as far as i can tell is no different and thank god for it because that makes conversations so much more interesting <laughs> yeah that's true to that. that's definitely true to that all right nick i appreciate you coming on my channel and uh talking about these things i think it's going to help a lot of people um do you want to plug your channel? And uh, I know you're. I'm enjoying the series you have going on. Uh, talk about James White, one of one of his uh, older books. Um, but you want to plug your channel for us? Yeah. So it's uh, the New Testament Theologist, or I think it's just New Testament Theologist. Uh, if you put it in, in uh, YouTube, it'll ask you if you mean New Testament theology. You have to say no. I mean New Testament theologist. <laughs> I found that out the hard way. <laughs> Had I known, I would have chosen a different name. But yeah. Um, Started a Patreon, got a bunch of patrons, just did a almost a 90-minute Q&A on all the questions they asked, everything from, like I said, types of Arminianism, hell. Um, if you're really wanting some nerdy stuff, I did an, a 30, probably 30-minute 30 answer to a question about a preposition in Greek in the Book of Revelation, <laughs> which was fun. Um, I, I loved every minute of it. So, yeah, that's if they want to find me, um, they can find all my stuff there. My Twitter is linked there as well if people want to follow me on Twitter. But, yeah, just New Testament Theologist. Nick Quint probably will, will get you there. But yeah, that's 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 where I am. And I'm loving it. And thank you for watching that series. It's exhausting and so much fun. I, I never uh, uh, I never know who's watching it. So it's always fun just to be like, I'm reading this book and telling people what I think about it and how much I think it is unsatisfying or helpful. And it's just interesting to see what people say about stuff. So yeah, thank you for, uh, for watching that. For sure. It's my pleasure. All right. Thanks, Nick. Uh, hope you have a great night. And um, hopefully, hopefully we can do this and do this again. Absolutely. Thank you.